So it's it's a bit different in the fetus compared to the pig after it's born. So it's not the lung that is the primary site of virus replication. So once the virus reaches a fetus, it mainly replicates within lymphatic tissues. Hello, welcome to this edition of Meet the Expert, a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Boehringer Engelheim. My name is Peter Best. To the genetics of the host in this study, uh, the, is this in relation to the potential for genetic resistance to be identified and bred into the animal, or was, was it not part of that? Yeah, that was the whole idea behind it, to look at maybe not resistance, but more resilience, so yes. to see that, yes. that you breed for less susceptible animals that um, deal with the disease in a better way. Yes. Now, I I don't know whether it's from that study. I remember reading that some animals with a resi- resilience, as you describe, can be identified even with the, within their genetic code, but that was only true for certain types of virus, for perhaps type 2 and not type 1 virus or, or some variation in the virus. They, I guess we have resilience to, there, there are different groups doing different type of research in the um, host genome or in the genetic resistance of the pig. You might have heard about the purse resistant pig, and that's some a different type of research in the end. So what we have done is infect a high number of pigs and look into so-called uh, nucleotide polymorphism. So in variation in the genome that can be then associated with more or less susceptibility to mm. the disease. Mm. And that you could use then in the future to select for less susceptible animals. But then on the other hand, you have researchers that look into the receptor of PERS, the CD163, and try to modify that receptor so that the macrophage, so the target cell uh, for PERS, is not going to be infected with the virus, at least with those strains that we have right now. Because that's another, I mean, the whole story about uh, target cells and susceptibility of cells to PERS is quite interesting, I would say. Um, And we don't know what happens in the future, because even if we have animals that don't have the CD163 receptor that allows the virus to enter, maybe in the future we have um, different cell types that the virus might enter when it keeps continuously evolving and changing. I don't know. And I believe that the, the CD163, uh, that original, was a very, very small study that they actually had a complete gene knockout um, of. So that's a haptoglobin. It's a transmembrane protein, I believe, yeah. that's a hap- haptoglobin scavenging protein. And that it actually has more normal functions, functions than even yeah. haptoglobin scavenging. And they found with the complete knockout that it also damaged the pig's normal functioning yeah. significantly. So... They've been attempting to to isolate just the part of that particular protein that's involved in the receptor function and then only alter that so that the protein retains its other functions. And at this point, um, I think the, the story continues. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I would have to say the same thing. You know, we have a virus that, that has an incredible ability to to mutate. And with all of these mutations of viruses, especially the RNA ones that mutate so much, 
um, mutations going on all the time, a lot of the mutations are fatal so that the virus cannot form again. Or, but, but mutations by nature, it's the ones that provide an advantage are the ones that, that then become dominant. So take this example of removing the receptor with a virus that does that, and um, we certainly won't have all the pigs in the world immediately be CD163 negative pigs. Yes. So the virus will still exist in the face of pigs that don't have the receptor. Um, I would have to think it'll find a way in. Yes. <laughs> yeah. with it. Can I, I've asked you about the research level, but this podcast is aimed at the field veterinarian, mm -hmm. the veterinary practitioner. And let's go back to the basics. What, what should a, a practitioner think about or be concerned about regarding high virulent PERS forms? What, what are the major concerns from a practice point of view? And could I put that to you, Dr. Stevenson, first, please? If, you know, if in your everyday work as a, as a veterinary practitioner, uh, what should uh, a, a veterinary practitioner be watching, aware of, or looking for? Well, yeah, and I'm a I'm an everyday veterinary diagnostician. I'm not an everyday veterinary practitioner. I I wouldn't pretend to know as much as many of these swine specific practitioners do in that in that way. Um, but I think for them, being aware of the different ways in which these high path strains manifest, especially some of the odd ways with nervous disease, for example, or understanding that we're seeing some of these strains across the placenta in the second trimester and what they may be looking at and just assuming is a breakthrough with either parvovirus or PCV2 as causing second trimester reproductive failure, they need to now consider PERS as a possibility there. Um, they may start seeing much larger amounts of, for example, strepsuasepticemia, and it may be that they've got a new strain of PERS that's behind that causing strepsuis, the same strain they've always had of strepsuis, to be able to be more aggressive because it's the underlying PERS virus that's, that's reducing the number of macrophages so profoundly in the pigs that then they're able to invade. The macrophage being really the frontline innate yeah. defensive yeah. cell against bacterial invasion. And uh, so I think it's that just as they become aware and hear podcasts like this or find other information, that they kind of put these things in the shelf of their mind so that they're considering them if they see these unique things they may not have associated with PERS virus before. I think most of them will know if they're seeing the same things they've seen, they're just worse. They'll just say to themselves, this is PERS virus and it's more severe than I've seen before. And they may just do more of the same things or, or reach out to, to producers of vaccine and others to, to find solutions. But it's the odd manifestations, I think, that, that they need to be aware of. So uh, aware of the, the changes from the past. Don't assume that what was in the past is going to be typical of the virus of, uh, appearance today. And you've suggested uh, that the evolution will produce more high virulent forms in the future so that the possibility would actually increase with time. One would speculate anyway that uh, there will be more of these forms opening the doors or... Uh, 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 having an effect earlier in gestation or whatever it is. Uh, so uh, 
from that point of view, I understand. Do you think, therefore, that they should be uh, looking in their client herds to see whether there are any changes in manifestation of the purse picture, uh, which are not as defined as you've suggested, but maybe subtle changes? Are there, are there changes which are not yet of an order which is completely out of the normal, but they're trending that way. Are there changes in, in the clinical picture like that? Well, that's that's really hard to answer. I, I guess the reason I say that is one of the hardest things we do um, where, where I am, and, and I'm sure where you are, is that you have people seeing things that they think are different than they've been in the past, one of the hardest things to do is figure out whether whether you have a, an agent that's been there before that is manifesting itself differently and actually assigning causation um, rather than association um, is a challenge. It's a challenge. And the easiest thing in the world to do is be wrong by making assumptions based on association um, and that, that there's no proof for causation. We have that happen every day, um, and it really does no one any good. We need to find proof and be sure of what we're talking about. And that's hard. You are listening to Meet the Expert, a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Boehringer Ingelheim. If you would like to know more about the subject we're discussing in this podcast, additional information is available offline. Dr. Stevenson mentioned vaccines, and I want to uh, uh, refer to some work I've seen of yours where you did some challenge studies with a, a new vaccine, or new in Europe vaccine, uh, which involves some high virulent forms, am I right? Uh, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit of what was the background to that study and what you actually did? Yeah, I can probably tell you a little bit about the background of that highly virulent strain. It was a European type strain that all of a sudden popped up that was in spring 2015, I guess. All of a sudden we heard about PERS outbreaks occurring more and more often. And from the field, it was the feedback that they are quite severe. And then we tried to get our hands on that strain and also got it in culture. And then saw the same thing also in the lab, that it, it did grow to high titers. It, it, it really killed the macrophages in the lab quite fast. Um, and then we did the first experiment, um, putting it back into pigs, because when you simply describe what's, what happens in the herds, we also got the feedback from reviewers. Yeah, but as long as you don't put it back in pigs, you cannot talk about a highly virulent strain, because in the field you have a lot of cofactors uh, influencing the clinical picture. And simply from what happens in a farm, it's not enough to say this is a highly virulent strain. So we went back and put it into pigs. Um, and did that together with a vaccine um, experiment. So we had vaccinated pigs that were challenged with that strain and non-vaccinated pigs. And we did that in a reproductive model, but we also started to do it in piglets in, in a respiratory model. And in the end, it really confirmed that, yeah, this is a, a more virulent strain or a highly virulent strain, um, also from a classical subtype 1 Western European type, 
um, that causes more disease, more damage, um, causes reproductive disorders at the same level more or less than type 2 strains. And it can also cause respiratory disease in piglets. And with the vaccine uh, studies that we have done, we found that the vaccinated pigs had quite good protection in to generally conclude, I would say, yeah. What was different about the vaccine that you tried? Was this a, a standard vaccine as far as you're concerned? Or I understood it was a specific sour vaccine for the... For we, have done, uh, we have done uh, reproductive models uh, with the sow vaccine, but we have also done uh, uh, challenge experiments in piglets using the piglet vaccine. Right. So we've done both. Right. And with high virulent forms, you're getting... Uh, plenty of evidence that the vaccines are giving protection even against the high virulence yeah. forms. But and and this is the benefit of having a high virulent uh, yes. strain of the European yes. uh, purse, um, that at least you have your non-vaccinated animals and you see the disease and you see the damage that the virus is causing. And that's what you need in the end to also prove that a vaccine is doing its job. Because when you hardly get any uh, clinical signs or any damage from in, in non-vaccinated animals, then it's also hard to get the difference between vaccinated and, and non-vaccinated pigs. Given our earlier discussion, at what stage were you vaccinating your sows? Um, we did it uh, as the, uh, uh, the, the company producing the, the vaccine is uh, recommending it. So uh, vaccinate the gills before you inseminate them. And then do a mass vaccination uh, every three months. And that's in the end what we tried to um, uh, to do also in those guilds. So they were vaccinated twice before insemination and then one time in around mid-gestation, which would naturally occur in a three to four month batch interval of vaccinating the whole yes. herd. Yes, yeah. And was that compared with the effect of piglet vaccination per se, whether sow vaccination, guilt vaccination or piglet vaccination gave you different results? In, in the south, it's easier, I think, in the end, to, to get a good level of protection with the piglets. Um, it's more complicated, I would say, to, to, to get the good protection on a piglet level um, and not have any problems any longer with purrs um, in the nursery grow finishing area. It's probably a, a bit more complex. Uh, be, for what reason, sorry, would you just explain that a little bit more? Why is it more problematic in piglets is it a practical application thing or i don't know maybe it's uh, partially it's numbers of animals that we're dealing with or um, the the maturity of the immune system it also has been shown that there is something like an uh, age re not not resistance but the older a, a pig gets the better the immune system deals with purse so the younger the animal is at the stage of infection the more damage the virus is causing so maybe with more adult animals, it's easier to get a, a better level of protection than in, in very young piglets. Hmm. Maybe oh, that has you. to do with but it. But certainly vaccination, we can be assured from your results, is protecting even with high virulent forms. So I guess your experience in America on the, in the field would show good results with vaccinated animals in the face of high virulence challenge, would they? I'm probably not the best person to ask that question. And the only reason I say that, um, being in the position I am in the diagnostic laboratory, I'm not at the level where those products are being used every day. And 
increasingly the majority of our swine are produced by closely held companies, and uh, those companies increasingly don't share that information. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, that's I fair enough. A lot of the literature that you can read out there proves that in experimental settings, the vaccines are working quite well. But then when it comes to the field situation, it's a lot more complex and a lot more complicated. Um, and I guess you also deal with a, a, a lot bigger number of, of peaks. So to all get them immune at a certain time, it's, it's not that easy compared to an experiment where we have low individuals. We all know their immune status. We know which other infections are going on or which they are free of and so on. So under experimental settings, it's, I think, a completely different story compared to out in the field. Well, and I think also when you're doing studies in experimental setting, you're tending to challenge the vaccination, vaccin the vaccine with a single strain, your challenge strain. In the field, we're dealing with a, a wide variety of strains that, that we know, you know, in the type 2 strains, they vary, the genome varies up to 30%. Just at a genomic level. Yeah. And we know of herds that have been vaccinated and we have the sequence of the strain that they've had in the herd, their field strain, and they've held pretty well. And and they've been holding. And then suddenly they'll have an outbreak as if they weren't vaccinated at all. And it'll be, I mean, you can see that there's a lot of divergence based on sequence. That doesn't give us any idea antigenically what's significant or not significant in relative to protection, but we can look at what happened. And I typically tell people, you know, the dilemma that we face is vaccine companies can have a very limited number of strains that can be in a vaccine. And we have such divergence in the, in the field. field in what strains are out there. At, at best, we can hope these vaccines protect against a majority of the strains. But there's going to be a minority of them that escape, you know, a vaccine's ability to So the to outliers will be yes. rare, but they will occur. Yeah, well, uh, rare unless rare. they're the one you have and yes, you produce a lot of pigs. Yes, yes. Then it's not rare to you. So, so, yes, I mean, that's the issue. And that's why we have so many kind of other things that happen, you know, with people trying to protect animals that may be not the best practice. Dr. Ladenick, uh, from your experience with the, the challenge uh, of the specific sour vaccine with these uh, high, highly virulent forms, uh, what would you say uh, from that would be the ideal for sampling in terms of diagnostics? So, uh, should we be looking at certain sorts of fetal tissue more than others? What's, what's your recommendation at this juncture, please? So it's, it's a bit different in the fetus compared to the pig after it's born. So it's not the lung that is the primary site of virus replication. So once the virus reaches the fetus, it mainly replicates within lymphatic tissues. Um, and uh, it's not that easy to, to sample a lymph node in a very small, maybe aborted autolytic fetus. So the thymus is one of the easiest uh, and also biggest actually lymphatic tissues that you can that you can sample from from a fetus or from a newborn piglet. Um, so in our studies, we always went to to look at the virus in the thymus, um, and you can also go for the diagnostics to to pool them from from more than one one piglet. So we usually do pools of five. 
right. um, and then you get a quite good result for represent that is representative for the complete litter. So take lymphatic tissue. In, take as lymphatic you tissue. Lymph don't oh, don't go to the lung. No. So the lung is not the the best place in a fetus to look for pers. Um, probably it has something to do that it's not ventilated yet as it is yeah. after birth, and yeah. maybe there are different types of cells there. Yeah. So go into lymphatic tissue and yeah. collect the thymus. And a pooled sample from five pigs w would be a good thing to In try. the end, it's, I think, important that you take enough uh, piglets uh, from a litter because uh, that's also something that our experiments showed that there is high variation in the number of infected fetuses per litter. So you might have litters where almost all of the piglets are infected and it's not that complicated to actually find the virus. But on the other hand, you have individual litters where you only get one, two, maybe three fetuses that get infected. And if you have a total of 14, 15 or whatsoever, so it's really important that your number is high enough. So you're better off taking a sample out of each of the piglets and do pools so that you get two or three pools out of the complete litter, but you cover all of them then your chances of actually finding the virus are way better compared to only sampling one or two of the piglets. Then you might miss then you might miss the virus, although it really caused the infection and the abortion. Very good. From our conversation with the experts here about high virulence forms of the PERS virus, it's clear they occur worldwide, known today in North America and Europe as well as in Asia, but still rather the exception than the rule. Nevertheless, some changes seem to be occurring which are being identified by the pathologists. Current research indicates, for example, that these high virulent strains can also induce neurological signs, which was not the case in the past with uh, our experience with PERS. Uh, and we are hearing also that if checking for uh, strains on a farm in where suspected uh, occurrence of high virulence strains is the situation, we should be checking for PERS also earlier than in the past, before the third trimester of gestation. Also, on a practical level, if you're looking for PERS in uh, fetuses, uh, we should be looking in the thymus and uh, it's the easier sample to take. And if we can pull five samples to run on PCR, that should give us uh, a, an effective answer. You have been listening to a Meet the Expert podcast presented by Boehringer Inkline. Please note that other podcasts in the series are becoming available. Stay tuned and thank you for listening.